Thanks, Aaron, and the rest of the team for, for serving us and preparing our hearts for the hearing of God's Word. So take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're working our way expositionally or expositorily through this passage in ways that have been um, just personally so edifying for me. I, I, I'll confess to you that I, I can only talk about so many things during the sermon that I've studied during the week, but I am finding this section of Scripture eminently practical, super convicting, surprisingly ambushingly practical. And I think that we're going to find that again today. The title for today is The Death of Enmity. That's the state of being an enemy with someone or hostility toward someone or a group of people. The Death of Enmity. Let me read the passage for us, Ephesians 2, verses 14 through 18. For he himself, that is Jesus, for Jesus himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by ha- by, and by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Being a part of a sin-cursed, broken world means being involved in a constant cycle of conflicts. We have conflicts with family members, conflicts at work, conflicts in neighborhoods, even conflicts in the church. And from the very beginning of Scripture, people were at odds with each other. You remember Cain and Abel, Jacob and Esau, good. Joseph and his brothers. Moses and Pharaoh. There was conflict between the Israelites and the Philistines, and the Israelites and the Jebusites, and the Israelites and the Hittites, and the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Amalekites, and the Edomites, and the Moabites, and the Midianites and the Egyptians, and the Assyrians, and the Babylonians, and ultimately the Greeks and the Romans. To study the history of Israel is to study the history of conflict. In a sense, the Bible is a chronicling of the enmity between Jews, God's covenant people, and those who weren't, which we call Gentiles, those who were not Jews. But... One of the most amazing wonders of the gospel is that it brings people together in Christ, because of Christ, through Christ, who would have never come together otherwise. 
Christ, through his death, brings peace between groups and people who would otherwise have had enmity or had been hostile with each other. And the Lord expects that those who know him would not only enjoy the peace that it brings between those that we would be at odds with uh, without Christ, but also we, would, also we would promote such peace and pursue such peace. Listen to how serious this is from the writer to the Hebrews. Hebrews 12, 14. Pursue peace with all men and the holiness or the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That's a mouthful. Pursue sanctification, pursue holiness. And he gives us an example. Holiness means pursuing peace with all men. And without that kind of peaceful sanctification, it proves you're not a Christian. No one will see the Lord without this. And he goes on in verse 15, see to it that no one comes up short of the grace of God, and here's the issue, that no root of bitterness springing up causes any trouble, and by it many may be defiled. This is an eternally and practical truth significantly. The writer to the Hebrews provides us with a divine criterion for entrance into heaven. Being a peace pursuer and a peacemaker, someone who's qualified by holiness or sanctification that qualifies us to see the Lord. And exhibit A here is one who pursues peace. Specifically, the pursuit of peace with all men and resistance against bitterness toward each other. Are you bitter? Are you bitter at anyone? Are you bitter at any group? Are you bitter at any country? Are you bitter at any race? Are you bitter at any politician? Are you bitter at any political party? Is there any bitterness in your heart? The extent of this is unqualified. Pursue peace with all men. Somehow it's far too easy for believers to justify enmity with those with whom we disagree with politically and socially and patriotically and even medically. This is the heart of the matter that Paul is addressing here in Ephesians. Unfortunately, Christianity has a dark past in our history where some have and still can view those with whom we disagree as our enemy rather than our mission field. That's speaking of unbelievers, but what's horrific is when bitterness or division or hostility or being enemies or having enmity is trafficked in the church with people sitting around you or across from you in a care group. Believers can maintain disagreements and distance with others and bring that into the church in a way that breaks the heart of our Savior. That was the case in Ephesus. It was the case in Asia Minor. It was the case to the people in the people with whom Paul is having this conversation in Ephesians. Both Jews and Gentiles, here was the problem, had come to faith in Christ. You say, how is that a problem? Well, they had such different worldviews 
and God put them in the same church, sitting on the same pews, going to the same care groups. And the long-standing animosity that existed between Jews and Gentiles needed to be eradicated for the church to be unified, and that was the case in Ephesus. Let me review. We've talked about this many times in Ephesians. Fair warning, we are going to come back to this list many times in the next chapter and a half. The Jews and the Gentiles were extremely different, had no reason to fraternize with each other at all, none. They had different diets. Have you read Leviticus chapter 11? There were so many restrictions in the Jews' diet, and the very things that the Jews were restricted from eating were the delicacies of the Gentiles, like pork. Every time I go to Joe's KC, I thank God for Acts chapter 10, where we can eat the pork. They had different diets. They had different calendars, different holidays, different weekends. They dressed differently. They used different languages. They had different places of worship, the synagogue and the pagan temples. Their children played differently. They had different educations. They had different neighborhoods, different places they could each shop. They had different greetings and different goodbyes. There was kosher and unkosher. They were different in every imaginable way. Add to that the reality that for centuries the Gentiles had encroached on Israel's real estate and Rome at that time, at the time of the writing of, of, Ephesus, of Ephesians, was dominating the Jews, persecuting them in their own land, arresting them for their racial identities, persecuting them with taxation exorbitantly and religiously just because of their race. We've said this a few times, about eight years from the writing of of Ephesians, Rome would be destroyed in AD 70. Tens of thousands of Jews would be taken captive to Rome as slaves. They didn't like each other at all. In fact, I would go so far as to say I've lived in the deep south. grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. I've lived in Los Angeles. I've lived in Kansas City. I know a bit about racism from different cultures clashing with each other. In California, for example, it wasn't as simple as a black-white thing. It was black, white, red, yellow, all races just at each other for different reasons. In the South, it was one thing. Here, it's another. You can go up to Sacramento and see the Russians and the, uh, the Sacramento uh, residents who were, who were American in collision. It's, 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 every, it's everywhere. None of those collisions were as dramatic as the Jew-Gentile. It's so easy to read Galatians and Ephesians especially and to see this conflict and think, oh, they, they, they were a little different. They were radically different. And God had them, are you ready for this, worshiping together. We know from early church history they were getting married, having half-breed babies is what they were called, and persecuted for even being together in the church, not only by the state, but by other religious groups. Christ, however, creates a new humanity out of Jews and Gentiles, both groups coming together in a common faith in the gospel. And we need to understand how that comes about. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. 
Because it's easy when you read this the first time to think it as well, uh, for me to think it as well. Well, this is Jews, Gentiles, this is history. It doesn't really have much to do with us. Oh, oh, contraire. The issues that we have opinions and values and worldviews as a part of our upbringing and our, our backgrounds that we bring into the church that cause us to be different with people in the church are solved, those differences are solved by the exact same issues that Paul raises between the Jews and Gentiles. The principles are the same for discovering and pursuing and enjoying unity in the church. How can that come about? Well, we're going to discover together two ways Jesus dissolves antagonism among his followers. Now, uh, kids, if you've got your, your little bulletin, there's a place there that talks about the proposition of the sermon. This is that proposition. This is going to be the kind of the, the guide that takes us through the passage. Two ways Jesus dissolves antagonism or being an enemy with someone among his followers. Two ways Jesus dissolves antagonism among his followers. The first way is in verses 14 to 16. Jesus embodies, you could even say personifies, peace through his sacrificial death. Jesus embodies peace. He personifies peace through his sacrificial death. That's right out of the gate in verse 14. For he himself, if you go back in the context, that's Jesus Christ. He himself, Jesus himself is our peace. Verse 13 told us that Christ's death, the blood of Christ, that's the code word for the death of Christ. He didn't just bleed, he died. The blood of Christ on the cross, the death of Christ, is what makes it possible for saved Jews and saved Gentiles to come near to God together. Here Paul tells us why. Because he himself is our peace. Now, of course, Jesus himself is the peacemaker between us and God. That, that's that's going to come later in the book of Ephesians. But the context here is that the peace he's providing, he himself is our peace, is not first and foremost here our peace with God. He's talking about the peace he brings about between the antagonism of the Jews and the Gentiles. That'll be evident in the next phrase. In the Greek, he himself is, is it like in all caps. It's dramatic. Not just he, that would have been enough. He himself, he personally it's emphasized to make an impact on our affections. He didn't just give us a contract or a method for having peace with those with whom we disagree. He himself brought about that peace. And peace between the Jew and the Gentile, as we've said, is a big deal. In our last study, verses 12 and 13, uh, the Gentiles were saved by His grace and now are in Christ alongside the Jews and have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by His cross. And this nearness to God dissolves all hostility because the one who brought us near is our peace. And He's the same one for the Jews and the Gentiles. Let me say it again. We forget that as Gentiles, our Savior is the Jewish Messiah. We should never forget that. Judaism and the Old Testament were just, are not just 
appendices to the gospel. They're the foundation, the prediction, the foretelling, the foretelling of the gospel. We, as Gentiles, according to Romans 11, were grafted into the promise God made to Abraham like he would branch, uh, like he would graft a branch into an olive tree. We were, we were the grafted, unnatural branches that were put on. We should never forget that blessing. Now, peace can be an abstract idea. Here it's not abstract. Look what he says. He himself is our peace. He didn't say he gives our peace. He didn't say he provides our peace. He himself is our peace. Peace is personified, embodied in Jesus. And in the next phrase, we confirm that Paul is talking about peace between Jews and Gentiles in Christ more than our peace with God. He will talk about that later in Ephesians. Look specifically. He himself is our peace. What do you mean by that? Who made both groups into, literally both, he made one. He made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. This is a show and tell illustration. And anyone, especially the Jews who had been to Jerusalem, would have understood this without any explanation. So were the Jews because they were alienated from God because of a dividing wall itself. The temple in Jerusalem was the temple built by King Herod. In the temple was a wall which separated the court of the Gentiles. You may have seen this in your, it's probably in, in, in an illustration in the back of your Bibles looking at the, at the temple. There was a wall that separated the court of the Gentiles. That was as far as they could go. And the rest of the temple. Oh, they were invited in. They were invited in to worship Yahweh. They were invited in to become believers in the Jewish God. But they could only go so far and they had to stop. And the Jews could go two steps further in and the high priest could go even further than that. They were alienated. It was a physical and a spiritual signal that the Gentiles could only come so close to Yahweh the true living God. I find this interesting because they're, they're always doing excavations in Israel. If you've been there, there are always digs happening somewhere doing something. How many of you have been to Israel? You know, there's digs going on everywhere. And usually they are, they're trying to move buildings so they can do digs because buildings were built on buildings, were built on buildings, were built on buildings and to find the original ruins of anything, you gotta remove something. Well, a few years ago, they unearthed some inscriptions, Josephus, the Jewish historian who is writing for the Romans, actually re records these inscriptions that were on the wall that divided the court of the Gentiles from the rest of the temple. Excavators discovered these inscriptions in 1871 for the first time, and then a couple more in 1934. Here's what these inscriptions said, quote, this is on the wall, no foreigner or no Gentile may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. They knew this inscriptions. Understand this. 
There was a dividing wall between where you could really worship Yahweh and where the Gentiles could come in. There was a dividing wall, and it said, the Jews said to the Jews, if you cross this wall, it's capital punishment. We will kill you for crossing this divide. What Paul says, he broke down the barrier, the wall of the dividing between Jew and Gentile. I think it's interesting because there's, there's, there's so many layers of this. Um, Paul's talking about the court of the Gentiles and the inner worship sanctums of the temple. And he said he broke down that wall to let the Jews and the Gentiles be together. That's impressive. But you remember where he talks about an even greater diminishing and demolition of a separation? Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the, the holy of holies, the holy place. He's talking to Jews and Gentiles here. That was another divider that only the high priest could go in and only once a year at that. And they would tie a rope around his ankle and put bells on the bottom of his priestly garb so that if the bell stopped ringing, they know that God killed him out of judgment and they would pull him out by his ankle. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter that place, the holy place by the blood of Jesus, the same language here in Ephesians, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil. There's the veil between the holy of holies and the rest of the temple, just as the dividing wall between Jewish and Gentiles was, was diminished. This one was destroyed as well. How? Through the veil that is his flesh, identical language. He destroys the dividing wall between Jew and Gentiles the same way he destroyed the dividing curtain between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the temple with his flesh, with his death. We have a great high priest over the house of God. Listen to this language. We've been brought near, says Ephesians. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The solution to the hostility between the two groups was a spiritual one. Not so much cultural, political, or social. It was truly spiritual. And in his death, Christ crushed and demolished the wall between Jews and Gentiles in the same way that he removed the veil between the holiest of holies, the access we have to God himself and the rest of the world. Both places it says it was the death of Christ that accomplished such access. Uh, next, the apostle explains this to us how Christ's death brings down the wall. How does this happen? How does this happen? Verse 15. By abolishing or demolishing in his flesh the hostility, the enmity, which is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances. Keep that word ordinances in your mind. So that in himself, there's the second time, in himself, Christ himself, in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. This is a curious phrase. 
that he abolished the law. What does that mean? It's interesting. He abolished in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of the commandment. How did Christ abolish the law or the commandment? Doesn't that sound odd? It should. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 17? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. <laughs> or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So what is he talking about here? That in his death, he abolished the law. Well, we find out what he means with the little phrase, ordinances. Remember, for the Jew, their peace was shalom. Complete dependent. They were completely dependent on their relationship with the law, but they also added a bunch of ordinances and extra things in the law, including how far you could walk from your house, how far you could walk from the temple, what you could do on the Sabbath, what you could eat, what you could touch, how many times you had to ceremonially bathe yourself. So the context here solves this tension about Jesus' words and Paul's with the word ordinances. Yes, Jesus kept and fulfilled the moral law of God. But he abolished the ordinances, the ceremonial, extra-biblical things. It was the requirements of the ceremonial law, washings, Sabbath restrictions, diet regulations, etc., which had been the main barrier between the Jew and the Gentile. Now they were gone. Real simple. We, we know that the dietary laws was a big deal. Jews and Gentiles could not even eat together. Which is why Acts chapter 10 is such a big deal. God gives Peter his own video screen, drops a sheet, and says, here are the unclean animals that Leviticus 11 says you cannot eat. That's now been fulfilled. Eat it all. In verse 16, he's going to describe this new group, this new body in which Jew and Gentile believers dwell. But here he says they were made strangely into one new man. This is odd language. It, it's, it's understandable if we say we were made into a group, we were made into a body, we were made into a church. We were made into one man? What does that mean? It doesn't mean everybody gets into one person's body. We were made into a new man, one man. This is referencing our new identity, no longer Jew, no longer Gentile, but now Christian. And might reconcile them both in one body, not only one man, new identity, but one body, one gathering together to God through the cross. There's our means again, the death of Christ, having put to death the hostility or the enmity. Ah, I love, love how Kent Hughes describes this. This is so good. I want to read you from Kent Hughes' commentary. Jesus didn't Christianize the Jews or Judaize the Gentiles. He didn't create a half-breed. He made an entirely new man. Chapter 2, verse 10, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. We are God's masterwork, a new race in Christ Jesus. This, this must not be watered down. This is the answer to alienation, to racism, to prejudice, to hatred, to estrangement. End quote. By the way, how this new humanity lives and operates in a sin-cursed world with each other for the glory of God, fighting against sin is what chapters 4 to 6 will address. And again, can I just beg you, don't miss the cross here. 
He put to death this hostility in his flesh on the cross through the crucifix, through the cross, having put to death the enmity. And if he put to death the enmity, the hostility between factions on the cross, we have to say what, what died on the cross? The enmity? Only, only in, uh, in theology. What died on the cross was Christ, which makes sense that he did this how? In himself. The enmity that dwells in every heart against another for any and every reason, Jesus killed in his own death on the cross. And his cross, look what it says, reconciles the believer to God. Again, more than a history lesson about Jews and Gentiles, how they came together in the first century, it is a blueprint for how every believer in every age ought to be unified by Christ and in Christ with anyone regardless of the things that could divide us. And there are many things this morning in our hearts that could uh, supply us with reasons to divide. Two ways Jesus dissolves antagonism among his followers. He embodies peace through his sacrificial death. He did it at the cross. Secondly, Jesus proclaims, this is interesting, he proclaims peace through a gathering, a coalescing good news, a good news message, a gospel. He proclaims peace through a coalescing gospel. This coalescing Jews and Gentiles he brings together is evident in verse 17. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. He's reaching back and quoting Isaiah chapter 57, verse 19, which says, creating the praise of the lips, peace, peace to him who is far and to him who is near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. This is so encouraging. Paul is proving that this, this new humanity of Christians is not something he invented in the new revelation in the New Testament. This goes all the way back to the old, all the way back to the covenant that God made with Abraham, all the way back to the reality that Eve's son, way down the line being Christ, would one day crush the serpent's head for all those who would believe. This is to prove that the concept of a Jewish Gentile humanity is not new with Paul. It goes back to the heart of God in the Old Testament. He wants peace, not just among men, but especially in the church. Isaiah 9, 6, we sing it always at Christmas. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. When the Lord was born, the angels said to him, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace to men on whom his favor rests. Luke 2, 14. On the night before he was crucified, Jesus said to his disciples, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. And immediately after his resurrection, he sh- this is a great scene. He shows up. The disciples are in a, in a room that's locked up. And they look over and Jesus is standing in the room, supernaturally in there. And what's the first thing he says? 
peace be with you. Well, we understand part of that is don't be afraid. Have peace, have shalom, have irene. Let me ask you a question though. Did Jesus preach to these two groups, those who were near the Jews, those who were far off? We had studied this last week, the Gentiles. Did he preach to both groups? Be careful because this preaching does not refer, I think, to the time of the Lord's earthly ministry. The reason is that there's no record that Jesus preached to the masses of Gentiles, any masses of Gentiles while he was on the earth. Oh, he dealt with a Gentile here and there, but not the masses as this verse in Isaiah would indicate. I think this preaching was and this preaching is accomplished through his followers. That's evidenced in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 and following. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Don't, don't miss this. God's mission to the world was to reconcile people to himself, and he's given to us the preaching or the word of that very message. Therefore, because of that, we are, do you know it? Ambassadors for Christ. This is incredible. As though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our account that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God preaching and making an appeal through his believers, his followers. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who were near. That's the Old Testament evangelistic great commission. Jesus began that, handed the baton off according to 2 Corinthians 5 to you and to me and we're ambassadors for him. As if, as if God we're making an appeal through us. The key here is to notice that the message of bringing sinners close to God and close to each other is for both groups, Jew and Gentiles, to be the evangelists of the world on behalf of Christ, not their respective backgrounds. That's why he says in verse 18, for through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, through Christ, have our access in one spirit to the Father. Please don't miss the Trinitarian dimension here. All three members of the Trinity are involved in our access to God. Through Him, we just learned through His cross, through His death, we learned from Hebrews chapter 10, He removed the veil which was His flesh that died for us. He died to bring us to God. 2 Peter 3.18 says, 1 Peter 3.18 says, through Christ, we have our access through one spirit, through the enablement of the Holy Spirit, we would never do it ourselves because of his enablement to the Father. The key phrase here is we both. We both have access to the Father because of Christ and the enablement of the Spirit. 
This informs us that there's only one way to God for both Jew and Gentile and every believer. Through Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, we have access to God the Father. Paul's going to give us more on that in the next chapter and a half, so just keep that kind of earmarked in your mind. As those who have been given peace with God and charged with pursuing peace with other believers, we have serious marching orders to be peacemakers as believers, especially in the church. Jesus said in Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. We will imitate the nature, the visage of our Father when we pursue peace. We'll look and sound and act just like Him. Again, this is not intended to be a mere history lesson about the first generation of the church, Jews and Gentiles. It is to give us the reasons and principles for pursuing unity and peace in our own context and in our own day. As I've thought about the real threats to the unity of our own body here on Mission Road, the last 20 months have been very revealing and, as I said last week, pretty surprising. I weekly hear of potential dangers to our unity. And much of it comes from social media and news outlets, to be honest. You know that the fuel that keeps social media platforms operating and keeps cable news on the air is enmity, division, and debate. I uh, say this with a little bit of embarrassment. I, I have come to the humbling conclusion that I am not spiritually mature enough to engage with social media. Because when I do, I get frustrated, I get angry, I'm easily led astray. I can be puffed up with pride. Who liked this? Who loved this? Who retweeted this? can easily be distracted. And you can pray for me. I, I've, I've just come to the conclusion I don't have the maturity to deal with social media. Maybe I will someday, but right now, you can pray for your friend, Rick. I, I don't. But I have seen over the last 20 months that those, those inputs into our life have caused divisions, generated inclinations that caused division and debate, we said last week that division among people is normal and expected. People can easily divide over politics. They divide over athletic teams, race, social status, blue and white collar occupations, older and younger. But it's tragic when those kind of divisions invade our fellowship in Christ's body. It's an interesting feature of an attending a Kansas City Royals baseball game, or a Kansas City Chiefs football game. I trust that you have, and if you haven't, you should, while you're living in Kansas City at some point. It's interesting how fans coalesce. When you're cheering on your team passionately, the opinions of the Kansas City fans around you about Everything else are irrelevant except your common love for your sports team. When someone scores, you don't say, Democrat or Republican? 
Vax or non-vaxxer? Mask or non-mask? You don't ask that. You cheer. Why? Because a common loyalty dissolves petty divisions. As we come together in the body of Christ, our opinions about non-biblical issues should be irrelevant in light of our common passion for our Savior. He himself died for our unity and our fellowship, our love for one another. You may not be struggling with the challenge of worshiping and serving next to a believing Jew as a Gentile believer or worshiping and serving next to a believing Gentile as a Jewish believer, but do you ever feel antagonism towards another believer who does not share your political opinions? Do you feel antagonism or hostility to someone who doesn't share your scientific opinions or your medical opinions, your social opinions, your policy opinions, your opinions about government and the government controls, your opinions about masks and vaccines? I said last week, I'm going to say again, I, I, I probably will say it in the future. If you had told me 24 months ago, Satan will cause legitimate and real divisions in the church over whether people receive a vaccination or wear a mask, how close they are, I would have laughed at you. I would have laughed. Satan's not that stupid, is he? He's a genius. And he's divided the church at large and has invaded our church on Mission Road. Because when we're talking about our loyalty to these petty issues, it gets our eye off the ball of our loyalty to our Savior. I pray that our biblical convictions don't become sidelined by our extra-biblical opinions. Jesus paid for our unity with his own life. That's a big deal. A few things to... Think about it as we walk away from this text. I got three. Number one, disagreements that divide us are resolved by a unified loyalty to Jesus. Disagreements that divide us are resolved by a unified loyalty to Jesus. Just like you can cheer on your favorite sports team in a stadium with 60,000 fans and not care what they think about politics, the common higher loyalty can drown out those things that are in that moment irrelevant, and nothing is ever, ever irrelevant when it comes to our loyalty to Christ. Secondly, Non-biblical passions must never eclipse biblical convictions. Similar, but a little different. Non-biblical passions must never eclipse biblical convictions. I have a sermon in my mind that I'm going to preach someday, but what is your social media reputation? Is it forwarding all sorts of conspiracy theories or all sorts of ideas about this and that? Or is your reputation that you love a resurrected Savior and you want people to know Him as well? What are you forwarding? What are you liking? What is your presence? What is your signature? And third, the world is watching how we care for one another in unity. 
The world is watching how we care for one another in our unity. The night before he was crucified, Jesus said in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Listen, by this, by you loving one another, by your love for one another, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, um, you're a very biblically literate and smart church. And so you're asking right now, how can we do that? How can we pursue peace and unity and effectiveness in ministry together? And the answer is in verses 19 through 22. And we get to study that next week. If you want to know, you can peek and look ahead. It's okay. I'm convicted. You know, you read this the first time, you say, ah, this is about the Jews and the Gentiles in the first century. It doesn't have anything to do with me. It has everything to do with us. And our loyalty to Christ overshadowing anything that might divide us or threaten our unity. Let me pray. Father, your son died for our sins. If there are souls here who have yet to embrace your son as Savior, may this be the day of reckoning for them. They would come to faith in your precious son. He indeed would be their all in all. And for those of us who have committed our faith to you, help us to see that no root of bitterness rises up over anything knowing that your son and his death for us resolves, dissolves, and solves every possible intrusion into our, into our unity. Convict us. Help us. Show us the idols in our heart that can too easily be worshipped instead of your son. In Jesus' name, amen.